Thanks so much for coming today, second Sunday of Advent. And if you're a guest, we're really delighted that you're here. If you've watched the news lately, then you know that we are living in extremely uncertain times. There are a lot of possible responses to that. I suspect we have collected all of those different responses in our own emotional makeup, just in a room with this few people. This morning we have the privilege for the next few minutes of honestly, I believe, focusing on the real solution. The solution, the answer, let's say, is not gun control. And it's not everybody carry a gun. In the most fundamental sense, The answer to the world that we live in is Jesus Christ. So today we worship him. I will be sharing from Luke 1, starting with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I don't know if you've seen the Geico commercials, the series, This Is What We Do. One of them, they have a young kid who we're quick to learn is Peter Pan, and he flies into what looks like a 50-year high school reunion and acting like some goofy kid would do, and the voiceover says, if you're Peter Pan, you stay young. This is what you do. But at Geico, you know, this is what we do. There's another one where the band Europe is playing their one-hit wonder. And that's <laughs> my favorite one. And they're, <laughs> they're in the break room, a coffee room of, <laughs> of, of an office with light show and this band over <laughs> the corner. <laughs> and then there are three people sipping coffee, looking at the band. And the voiceover says, if you're the band Europe, this is what you do. If you're a Christian, what you do is... Worship Jesus Christ. We worship Jesus Christ. This means we honor him with our voices and with our hearts and with our lives. We pattern our lives after his life. We follow his teaching. We believe in and trust in his power. And we look to him to find our meaning and purpose and even our pleasure. We worship Jesus Christ. Now, there are two important things before we jump into what was suggested in this passage for us this morning. Two important things for us to make note of, and these are high-level things. Number one, 
We are not religious pluralists, at least not in the sense that's being defined in our culture today. Religious pluralism says all religions are equal, and we need to honor all religions. In fact, all religions say essentially the same thing. But this attitude does not honor any religion. In fact, it's highly offensive to all religions except the religion of secular humanism. All the major religions agree that we don't agree with one another, and the best of those religions are okay with that. I'm not offending a Muslim by saying that I have a different view of God than she does or he does. And here's the thing about God. God may not exist, but if he exists, he is what he is. And we don't get to make up what he is. So not every picture of him is equally right. I don't get to say what I think Phil Salih is like, what he looks like, and how he would act in certain circumstances because Phil is real. And he looks a certain way and acts a certain way in certain circumstances. So while you can be sincerely right about God, you can also be sincerely wrong. I'm not saying that we don't honor one another's right to believe what we believe and, and worship how we choose. And if that's what we mean by religious pluralism, then we are religious pluralists, but that's not what our culture means. I, I'm saying that those beliefs are different, and to pretend that they aren't doesn't honor anyone. As Christians, we worship Jesus Christ. That's what this season is all about. It's not about lights and presents and, and warmth and family. Those are fantastic sprinkles on top. But the Sunday itself is the worship of Jesus Christ. We believe that He is the exact representation of God's being squeezed into human skin according to Hebrews chapter 1. Second note, we worship Jesus Christ because we believe the biographical accounts of his life are true. If you forget everything else, don't miss that word true. I've gotten into trouble with some of you because occasionally on a Sunday morning, and I'll get an email from one of you, occasionally on Sunday morning I'll say something like, now here's why scholars struggle with this passage, some scholars. They struggle even believing it as it's constructed. Or I'll say something like, here's why some people doubt this incident. Or I've even said, here's why I have tended to doubt this account. But we have to struggle with the truth of these accounts. We have to be honest, even with our own doubts, especially with our own doubts. Because our faith rises and falls on its truthfulness. Not how it makes us feel or how sincere we are about it. It rises and falls based on its truthfulness. As I've said before, Christianity is not essentially a way of life or a mindset or a set of religious practices. Christianity is essentially a belief in the truth of a set of historical, factual occurrences. Historical, factual occurrences. Now, Let's allow. These occurrences may not have actually happened as they've been described for us. And that's what many would suggest. And if that's the case, then as the Apostle Paul himself says, we are the biggest fools. But this is the heart of our faith. These events we believe are true. They actually happened. We don't believe them because we're American. We don't believe them because we were raised in a Christian home. We believe them because they're true. And if they're not true, then let's quit. I'd like to sleep in some Sunday mornings. I got a really bad night's sleep last night. I would love to have slept in this morning. 
Some of you have better things to do. If these events are not true, this truth claim includes the incidences of Jesus' birth, by the way. Now, we won't take the time today, and I'm sorry we can't. Some year we will. But we won't take the time today to build a case for the historical viability of the virgin birth. But I assure you, a very good case exists. Now, there are many reasons to doubt the historicity of the virgin birth, and many have doubted it, and I know some of you do. But there are also good, reasonable justifications for believing it. So, someone is thinking, can I even come to Gateway if I disagree with all of this? Ed, that sounds a little archaic and narrow. Of course you can come to Gateway. I know for some of you this sounds exclusive. I know not all of us agree with one another about this. That's perfectly fine. Let's struggle together. For some of you, these kinds of truth claims sound like exactly, and here's the point I want to end with in this little introduction. For some of you, these truth claims sound exactly like the kind of intolerant attitude that gets us into profound trouble in the world today. So let me say again, I personally, and with all this in me, Gateway collectively, we will affirm and defend everyone's right to believe as they believe and to practice that belief. That's not in question, and when we put that into question, that's when we get into trouble. But may I suggest one final thing as an introduction as we tee up the worship of Jesus Christ. Let's drill down for a second on what is being and has been said about intolerance. And let's remember, you and I, this morning, that tolerance is a Jesus value. Jesus brought tolerance into the world. Jesus was the one that they they called a friend of sinners. Jesus was the one that said, don't make it so narrow and strictly about rules. Hey, you, yes, you, prostitute, come, let's hang out together. You, tax collector, worst of all, you, come, let's hang out together. And somehow, that Jesus value of tolerance has been, I think, co-opted and bastardized by our culture to make it the supreme value Tolerance is not the supreme value. Love is the supreme value. And love sometimes says, I disagree. Love sometimes says, I think you're wrong. No one is being intolerant when they say, I think you're wrong, I disagree. Sometimes they're being profoundly loving. You don't find tolerance in Saudi Arabia. There was no tolerance in communist Soviet Union. Tolerance is a Jesus value. And this morning at Gateway Community Church and every Sunday morning that we gather, and for most of us, I hope, most of Monday through Saturday, not all if we're honest, but most of it, we worship Jesus Christ. And this story begins that for us. So why do we worship Jesus Christ? Why? I'm going to give a very partial list this morning. Number one, because he is profoundly humble. He is supernaturally humble. He was born in Nazareth in Galilee, a backwater, podunk place in the world, not born in a palace. There was no room for him. He was born in a stable amongst cattle and animal excrement and very earthy smells. 
He was born of humble, working-class parents. Some of you know enough of my story to know that I had a friend in my youth, in middle school and high school years, who was probably, you're going to think this is an exaggeration, but it's not, uh, who was probably the best athlete in the state of South Carolina. When he graduated from high school, he got drafted by the Yankees. He had an offer to go play basketball at the University of North Carolina, and he went to Clemson to be their quarterback and ended up as a quarterback in the NFL. His name was Steve. And when we were in junior high school, we used to gather in Steve's backyard. His dad had played basketball for the University of Kansas, and he had built full court (laughs) basketball court in Steve's backyard. So the neighborhood would gather in Steve's backyard. And Steve was the kind of kid who would always say, because I think it would just get Steve's competitive juices going. I think that's why. But Steve would invariably, we, the whole neighborhood would gather, and Steve would say, okay, I'll take the blind kid, and I'll take the girl from Lithuania who's never heard of basketball, and we'll play the six of you. And Steve would always win. And not only would he win, he would find some way to get the blind kid to score half the points. Sometimes I think God does this. I think God sets the odds against himself to demonstrate who he is. No, no, no. We're going to make him from from Nazareth. And when they go to Bethlehem, there's not even going to be a hotel room. He's going to be born in a cattle stall. And I'll raise him up to be the king of kings. One of his early followers, the Apostle Paul, years later would say this about him. Look, your attitude mind should be the same as the attitude of Jesus Christ, colon. This is what that attitude is. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held onto or something to be grasped. But he, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. We worship Jesus Christ because he's humble. We worship Jesus Christ because he's utterly unique, utterly. His life issued from the most extraordinary of circumstances. It began in the most impossibly extraordinary way. So the passage that Jackie read for us this morning, chapter 1, verse 28, the angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting might this be, parentheses, besides there's an angel standing here. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Verse 34, How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? I am a young woman who is engaged to be married, and I have never been with a man. The particulars of Jesus' birth are that they were announced by an angel and it happened to a virgin. I remember when Diane told me that Jordan was going to be born. Those of your guests, the guy who was singing up here this morning is my son. And I remember 
years ago, Diane, telling me that Jordan would be born. We had an unfinished basement in our home, and it was really dark and dingy, and you didn't want to go down there by yourself, or at least not without a gun. And she asked me to come down into the basement where our uh, washer and dryer were. And she told me she was pregnant. And I was through the moon. But there were no angels. I know how angelic you think you are, Jordan, but there were no angels. And Diane, in other ways, was unlike Mary. Sorry, Jordan, I know you don't like to think about that, but it is the case. Diane and I had, had James, we had been together. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, what, what, James says? Mary was a virgin. Because we worship Jesus Christ because He's utterly unique. And there's no question that Luke is announcing that from the very beginning of his biography. Hey, street sign, hey, look at this. Look how profoundly unique He is. He begins this whole book by saying, hey, Theophilus, I'm writing you a letter because I want you to know the certainty of the things that you've been taught, and I've investigated them, he says, thoroughly. Hey, street sign, look at how profoundly unique he is. This is why one of his best friends, John, would later, writing his own biography of Jesus, give sort of a summary statement of the whole deal, and he would say in a verse that sometimes signs are held up at football games to demonstrate this, he said, you know, God, God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son. We worship Jesus Christ because He's utterly unique. Thirdly, we worship Jesus Christ because He's God's Son. Literally infused with the Holy Spirit. He was made of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35. How will this be, Mary asked. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be called the Son of God. I can't explain the biology. And as I said, this is not the Sunday to deal with the believability of this. So today, let's mark our territory. If this seems ludicrous to you, then my challenge would be, honestly, my challenge would be why. I mean, I get it, but why? In other words, I'm encouraging you to doubt your doubts because that's rarely an exercise that we go through. We assume that faith has to be doubted, but we rarely doubt our doubts because doubts are often equally hard to substantiate. I know this is utterly unique. I know it's unexplainable, and I know it's unrepeatable, but in defense of the accounts, they know it as well. That's why they bring it up. Well, you may be saying, I've never seen anything like this, and it, it can't be explained from any science that we know, Ed. Remember, pause. That may not be as solid a ground for suspicion as you're thinking. Just think for a brief second about how much we've changed some of our assumptions in the world of physics, some of our basic assumptions. And even in the world of biology, over the last 25 years, much less over the last 100 years. On the other hand, today, some of you do believe this. This is the time for us, y'all. This is the season. 
in the midst of the rush and going and making sure you're getting everybody's Christmas presents to stop and wonder and go, wow, an angel came. An angel came and said, you're going to have a son and you're not going to be with a man. part of why we worship him he's utterly unique he's god's son literally infused with the holy spirit the astronaut james Irwin, who traveled to the moon obviously saw and experienced things that most of us never will and i'm being generous really none of us will and yet Irwin says he never got over the crux of christmas he said it like this There's something more important than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. We worship Jesus Christ because he's great. He's not only humble, he's great. Verse 32a. You'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He is so great, and this is unmistakably part of Luke's message here. He is so great that when Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's older, and married to the priest Zechariah. We read about that last week. When Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth experiences the baby in her womb leaping at the mere presence of the unborn infinitesimally small fetus Jesus in Mary's womb. Remarkably, let's hear this account. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is the one who believed that what the Lord had said to her would be accomplished. Okay, look. I'll guarantee you that there were five dozen sweet baby Jesus stories that Luke had heard in his years of hanging around the entourage. Why include this one? Because it demonstrates the greatness of Jesus even in the womb. And in Luke's mind and in ours, this is an underscore bold italics exclamation point. He was great. I encourage you sometime this season to read the biography of Luke and look for the greatness of Jesus. It's in every paragraph. He was greater than sickness. He was greater than all spiritual darkness. He was greater than nature. He was the greatest teacher. He was the greatest leader. One of Luke's central themes is, hey, I want you to see how great he was so that you too might worship him. And brother Luke, we do. We worship Jesus Christ. Finally, he was great because he's the Messiah. Verse 32b. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. 
without question, as Alyssa was suggesting this morning, that someone who would be a savior and a king and a prophet and a priest and a warrior, someone would eventually come on the scene and he would be from the line of David and he would be great and he would rule forever. It was, of course, the hope in Jesus' day that such a Messiah would come at that time and, and would overthrow Rome. And Jesus was that Jewish Messiah, but the enemy that he overthrew was far greater than the, the empire of Rome. Jesus overthrew sin and spiritual darkness. And not for the Jews only. And from the very first of his life, God wanted to make it abundantly clear that this was a Messiah for all people. I'm going to get ahead of us, but listen to the announcement that the angels make at Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ. He's the Messiah. The Lord. And this is how you'll know. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A baby, yes. In a manger, yes. Not in a palace. In the most humble of circumstances. And He's great. He's not just Messiah. He's my Son. We worship Jesus Christ because He's our Messiah. Let me end with this. I read a theologian a couple of weeks ago that described the incarnation. And incarnation is a fancy word for God squeezing Himself into human skin. He described the incarnation with these words. God must be able to come over to our side without leaving His own side. This is what happened in the life of Jesus. God came over to our side without leaving His own side. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we worship You. We honor You this morning with our lips, with songs that we sing, with prayers. We honor You with our hearts, this morning intentionally, willfully, we turn our attention to You and we give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of You. We bow before You this morning and we say, You are King even of our lives. And we are utterly amazed and blown away that You came down that You came to our side without leaving Your own side. We follow You. We listen to You. We pattern our lives after Your life. Willfully. We choose to be like You. We choose today to ask You what You would have us do with the rest of our day. We choose to make our agenda your agenda. We believe absolutely and utterly we are not here today by accident. We believe instead that we are here today to do our best to offer you our worship. And that's what we do. Gladly. 
We believe with all of our hearts that that's the answer. That's the answer for the world. That's the answer for our problems. That's the answer to our finances. Because ultimately, as our love for you abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, we'll be able to discern what's best for our children, for our finances. So this morning, we intend to worship you. We set our hearts on that. We honor you because you're our Savior. And that includes this morning the acknowledgement that we need one. We need a Messiah. We bring before you this morning the difficulty that we've made of our lives, of our relationships, of our finances, of our health, some of us. We have lust problems and pride problems and self-discipline problems. We have connection problems. We're so protected. We're so thorny. We're so interested in having people like us and accept us or respect us. We're so afraid. This morning we know, Lord, our only hope is a Messiah, a Savior. We worship you because you're, you're utterly unique. There's no one like you. We worship you because you're humble, meek, and mild. You've sheathed your power and your glory for our sake. We can't imagine utter power, utter glory, utter majesty, and yet it was all sheathed. And it absorbed itself in the most humble circumstances for us and for our sake. And we worship you because you're great, awesome in power, unimaginable in majesty. And we worship you because you're God's Son, the one and only. So we set our hearts before you and we adore you. That is, we also acknowledge that's awkward for us. For some of us, Lord, really, a lot of us, especially for some of us who are men, we barely know how to adore people that are with us. Present, physically. And you're not. So have mercy. Now, I'm thankful this morning, Lord, that as we come today to worship you, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, I am deeply thankful today that it's you who works in us both to will and to work according to your purposes. So we throw ourselves at you, King Jesus, King of Heaven. We ask you to come down.
Come. 